Thank you for downloading our podcast. Zachariah is a prophet who delivers a message to Israel regarding their national failure to prioritize the rebuilding of God's temple. We might say, well, this is only a building. So what really is the big deal? The big deal is that we see a deeper problem in the stalling of the construction project. The problem in the issue is whether the Lord really can build his people in his city into a place that is worthy of his dwelling. So can the Lord build his city? Is the Lord sovereign enough to bring his redeemed people into his presence as he has promised at the exit of Eden? Please stay tuned to this series on Zechariah, where we consider the night visions. Are they visions of doom or deliverance? Well, as we read the Pentecost sermon from Peter, he delivers this sermon in the context of an accusation where the witnesses of Pentecost assume that the people who are speaking in tongues are those who are actually drunk, that that they've just engaged in some sort of party and, and there's something immoral going on. And Peter gives the assurance that that these people were not partying at all, but rather this is a manifestation in the day of the Lord, that people who do not normally speak a particular language are now speaking in a language they did not know in the power of the Spirit. And so as Peter identifies the day of the Lord with Pentecost, it's important to understand the significance of this. Because Peter's showing that the day of the Lord that we think normally of a one-time event as we read the prophets is just a one-time thing. So when the day of the Lord comes, there's instant glory, we enter into the promised kingdom, and Christ is seated on the throne. And when we look at that, we can say, well, you're just taking a New Testament and you're imposing it on the Old Testament and trying to read prophecy through that lens. But actually, when we look at Zechariah, going on 12 through 14, as he lays out the day of the Lord, we're seeing that this day has many manifestations, many things and events that transpire on this day. And so when we talk about the day of the Lord, we we need to understand the intention of what Zechariah is getting at. When we think of day of the Lord, we should think of day of restoration or time of fullness or time of rest. And as Zechariah lays this out, there's a series of things that will happen leading to the fullness of rest. And so as we hear this, we need to be instructed by the prophet. And so how do we arrive at this conclusion that the promise of the day of the Lord, the the promise of this restoration, is not something that comes in a one-time event when Christ enters history, but is actually manifested Uh, over a series of things that transpire where we taste the blessings and we move uh, to the fullness. So as we consider this, we'll see first the morning congregation where there's sorrow. We find then the morning city, and then we have the morning cleansing or the new day or the ultimate uh, kingdom manifestation. And so let's begin with the morning uh, congregation. We're just going to basically look at Zechariah 12 verse 10. Here as Zechariah speaks, we we need to remember where this starts. As we saw last time, uh, we said that the beginning of of chapter 12, basically 1 through 9, sort of taking the drink from the fire hose. 
uh, Zechariah is just laying out a bunch of things about the day of the Lord. Uh, it becomes a bit of a challenge to sort of communicate uh, the one thing that he's intending to do. But if we want to summarize verses 1 through 9, is basically the Lord is going to manifest his power in such a way that his people will become like the mighty angels of heaven engaged in his holy war and bringing about the final battle. So remember in verses 1 through 9, uh, we talked about the battle of Armageddon, where you have the assembled nations coming together. And remember, this isn't assembly in the sense of how we assemble uh, for worship as God's people wanting to be called into God's presence and to worship him. But it's assembly in, in the Hebrew language of, of a, a malintention or an assembly for war is the force of that word. So it's, it's a mountain of the assembly, but it's a mountain of the assembly for war. And then we have the assurance that the Lord puts us down. So honestly, if, if you wanted to take Zechariah, say like the prophet Joel, he could have stopped at verse 9. Uh, we could have discerned what he intends. But he goes on to finish this and laying out more detail about the day of the Lord. So now, as we look at uh, 12 verse 10, we're moving from, okay, so there's a battle of Armageddon. That's the ultimate place where this is going. But, but what's setting this in motion? What, what does this look like? Well, the Lord promises on the house of David. So uh, this is dealing with those who are under the Davidic king, uh, Judah, uh, the Jewish people. His intention is he's going to pour out something. Uh, as we read in Pentecost, we find that it's the pouring out of his spirit that goes out. Uh, this happens as Christ is one who dies on the cross. Now, as we hear this manifestation of this pouring out of the spirit on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So remember, Jerusalem means vision of peace. So the intention here is that as we've sort of left off with the nations assembling to make war against God and his purpose, assembling to destroy the Lord's holy mountain, take Jerusalem, the Lord's saying that despite this, his vision of peace, Jerusalem, is going to be established. Mount Zion will stand strong. The inhabitants will dwell on this city. We say, great. This is a vision like we see in Revelation, the city of God coming down from heaven, resting upon his mountain, the saints entering into the presence of God, dwelling with him at the heavenly banquet, singing praises before the Most High God in their glorified state. So we say, wonderful. The battle of Armageddon, these nations that assemble with malintentions or, or with evil intentions to destroy God, are not going to prevail. So we say, wonderful, we're going to enter in to the city of Jerusalem. This is where we long to go. But as Zechariah goes on, he says he's going to pour out this spirit of grace. So it's not just the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour something out, which we find is his spirit, upon his people, confirming the work of Christ. But there's going to be something else where there's a spirit of grace. In other words, it's an understanding of God's people knowing this grace. So when we hear this, say, of course we understand this. Isn't this how God has called Abram? 
called him out of a place of idolatry, called him to be his servant, promised to be a shield and defender. And we find in the life of Abraham, as he wanders and meanders as a sojourner in this world, the Lord does protect him and fulfill that promise. So we say, wonderful, we understand that we need grace. We understand that we do not deserve the Lord's affection and and, and the Lord's uh, mercy that is shown to us, which goes on. There's a spirit of grace, an understanding of grace, an understanding that that life only uh, really happens as the Lord shows his benevolence and mercy upon us. But it's not just grace and mercy like we would find in the greetings that we have from the apostles in their letters. So we would expect grace and mercy is poured out upon us. Right, we, we, we expect that. But it's something that's more active. Something that, that the recipients of grace do. That there's pleas for mercy. This tells us that, that, that the manifestation of the day of the Lord is going to bring about a, a true repentance. Where God's people are actually broken by something. They, they actually fall down. Begging God for mercy. So this is something that after hearing from Armageddon, this is part of the problem of preaching when you have to break up these narratives, but you hear the battle of Armageddon, you say, okay, so we enter into the rest of God, we go into Jerusalem, I get that. But why are we pleading for mercy? God has already redeemed, he's already poured out his spirit, he's already given us new life. Why, why are we pleading for mercy? But we go on, so that when they look on me, on him, Notice the divine declaration. It's look on me, being God, on him. So this is telling us that the one who comes to redeem is not just a messenger. He's not just an angel. He's not just a prophet. This is God himself who comes to his people. That's what Zechariah is telling us here in verse 10. So we've talked about Jehovah Witnesses. That's another text to give to them. Say, but wait a minute, what does Zechariah promise? He promises that we're going to be begging for mercy from God on him, on the one he has sent. This is God who has entered history. And why? Notice how he builds the drama. You start at this high point, understand grace, understand mercy, wonderful things that God has shown his benevolence. And, but, but why are we coming before him? What, what, what has happened? Him whom they pierced. This is a death blow. This is something that is absolutely uh, leading to death. This is an an, an event in war where a sword comes and it pierces someone and it is a mortal wound. So this piercing that goes on when he comes to the city is something that should cut us to the heart as well. Where you start thinking, my goodness. This is our Redeemer. This is the one who shows up at Armageddon. Remember we use the analogy that the nations come around. They have all the modern technology, airplanes, drones, whatever you want to say. And we're standing in the midst of the city with a BB gun. We know that we're done. We we know that the moment they march on the city, we're finished. And then you have the Lord coming down and fighting the battle for his people and showing that he truly is a protector. So you would move to verse 10 thinking, we would embrace this king. We would embrace this warrior. He's like David. But that's not what they did. They pierced him. 
They killed him. The, the one who's in their midst fighting on their behalf in the battle of Armageddon, they stab in the back. That's the declaration of this. And so if, if we wonder why grace is so profound, if we wonder why God's mercy is so profound, it's not that we just rejected God at Eden with Adam. When Christ entered history, how did we receive him? We turned on him. We stabbed him in the back. We pierced him. We killed him. We might say, well, it wasn't us. Well, what, what happens? Christ enters history. They chant, crucify, crucify, crucify. His own disciples, when Christ is hung upon the cross, are they there defending him? Are they there standing before Christ saying, this is my Lord, this is my Savior? And Christ dies. How does he find them? Locked hidden in a room, terrified of what may happen to them. That's the point of what Zechariah is making. He's saying, listen, when this Lord in Zechariah 9 comes into Jerusalem riding upon the donkey as royalty, this isn't going to be a manifestation where he goes to Jerusalem, sits upon the throne, and everyone praises him. No, you're going to stab him in the back. That's what you're going to do. Now, when we hear that, we say, well, so, so what happens after that? Well, what a tragic, abominable thing that we as humans have done to our God. Well, where's the hope? Does it mean it's done? But notice how it goes on specifically. That it goes on now that they're going to mourn for him. Mourn as a firstborn child. So the declaration here with this mourning for him, that he's cut off like the pagan world. Isaiah 13, 15 uses this language, echoed to Isaiah 53, which is another possibility. But the people mourn. They're broken, sorrowful. And notice the language that's used here. We talked about uh, Zechariah 12, 1 through 9, echoing the Exodus event of, you know, the vat of blood and these sorts of things and how the Lord delivers his people by his mighty hand against all hope. Well, now it's like the people of Israel take the role of the Egyptians, where the language that's used here is the Egyptians as they mourn over their firstborn child. Now this is what Israel is going to do over their God and over their action. That God's people will mourn as we have Egypt mourning and weeping over their firstborn child. And so this is understanding that God's going to break his people. They're going to recognize what they have done. And so this congregation as they gather together is going to understand what they have done is wrong. They're going to see what they have done to their Savior and their Redeemer. They will be like Egypt, mourning over the 10th plague when the Lord takes his people and brings them out to this land of slavery. And so we find then the mourning congregation. But what about the city? How does the city react? Going on then, Zechariah continues to lay this out for us in verses 11 through 14. That there's going to be mourning in Jerusalem. So the the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, where the Lord will pour out his spirit, is the implication of verse 10. He's going to pour this out, give them something. We have now in verse 11, again, on that day, so the manifestation of the day of the Lord. 
There's this great mourning in Jerusalem. Now this event that's called to, to our attention, they will re- weep like those at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Uh, this event that's called to our mind uh, here is an event where Josiah dies, recounted for us in 2 Kings 23-29. If you read that story, it's just simply a matter of fact, Josiah died, it was a sorrowful day, he dies by the hand uh, of, of, um, of the Pharaoh, and as he dies by the hand of Pharaoh Necho, uh, the people are sort of sad. So that's, that's the presentation in 2 Kings. So you read that and you say, well then, what's the significance of this? I mean, a king dies. It happens in Israel's history. Well, if you go on and you dig deeper into Israel's history and you read the second account in 2 Chronicles, in 2 Chronicles 35, verses 20 through 26, we find more details about how this impacts the people of Israel. See, this is a King Josiah is one who is told not to go into battle. He disguises himself, goes into battle. Pharaoh Necho has actually told him and warned him, don't do this. Uh, This isn't going to end well for you. But he disguises himself, goes into battle, ends up getting shot by an arrow. Uh, He's escorted out of there and he dies in his chariot. As a result of this, we have Jeremiah commanding the people of Israel in the Second Chronicles 30, 30 verse, or 35, verse 25. So Second Chronicles 35, 25. Uh, Jeremiah commands that the people have a, a yearly or annual fast or time of mourning regarding this king. And so when Zechariah calls this to our attention, he's basically saying there is a king unlike Josiah, or Josiah was a pretty good king, But unlike this event where Josiah acted on his own behalf, there is going to be a king who did not do that, who comes to Jerusalem to sit upon the throne of David and who is pierced, who is cut off, who is stabbed in the back, and you're going to mourn, and you're going to mourn deeply. Now, we have in Chronicles a record of the prophet commanding an annual mourning ceremony. So this is something that happens year after year. The people are to mourn this king. What we have in Zechariah is that it's something that's taken upon themselves. And we have these houses, and we don't fully know why these houses are mentioned, but I would argue that it's the houses that are known stereotypically or or in our minds in terms of summarizing who these individuals are as their representatives, that these are houses that were faithful to God. Think David overall. I mean, yes, he had his moral failure, But overall, David was a king uh, who did certainly repent and bow the knee to the Lord. We think of Nathan the prophet. He goes and he confronts the king. Uh, We think about the Levites, ideally what they were supposed to do. And we have this presentation of the community that the husbands are sad, the wives are sad. In other words, this whole city is engaged in mourning. Uh, This Mourning is is something that we would understand uh, as putting on the sackcloth and ashes. The the mourning that's a deep sorrow for sin and what's going on. That as they're ones who have pierced this king, they recognize the implications of what has happened. This is where we think about Peter in his Pentecost sermon. Because after all, 
when we think about what we have done as human beings. We can have the same question as the audience, right? Audience witnesses this. Peter gives his sermon. We find in Acts 2, verse 37, they, they turn to Peter and say, well, what, what do we do? How, how do we handle this? Uh, this is a grievous act on our part. How can we come back from this? And Peter in Acts 2.37 gives them an answer. And what's the answer? That as he gives this answer, they are those who are to repent, turn to the Lord, be identified in his mission by baptism, and be those who truly bow their knee to the living God. He actually cites the Abrahamic promise, almost citing from Genesis 17 verbatim. And as he gives this citation, he gives that exhortation, that's what's going on here. That's the prediction. That all of a sudden the people will understand on the day of the Lord or a manifestation of the day of the Lord, what have we done? We may ask ourselves, how do we come back from this? How do we recognize the reality that if we were there, we probably would have participated in stabbing the Messiah in the back? The answer is repent and believe and be found in the Lord. But when we understand the reality of what's going on in this repentance, the reason I call to your attention, this is not a prophet who prescribes it or an apostle who prescribes it. This is rather what we see uh, with the people taking this upon themselves. They're broken by their actions. And a commentator on this passage does a good job of distinguishing between a godless sorrow a selfish sorrow versus a godly sorrow. And the commentator says, selfishness grieves because it's sorry that it will suffer punishment for sin. But true repentance gives it as injured the Father. It is that sincere grief for sin because God, which will mark Judah's future, repentance. And so in other words, it's a recognition here with this prediction. This is not an action. This is not an outward uh, performance thing that's going on. This is a sincere cutting to the heart and recognizing that what one has done is wrong and there is no hope. And so the Lord is the one who manifests this power. So in terms of, of this reality of where we see this manifesting and this backstabbing and, and the families of, of Jerusalem, the vision of peace, truly repenting in light to this vision of peace. What about the cleansing city? Is there going to be a new morning, a new time of cleansing? This is where we find uh, in 13, 1 through 6, the reality of this. Because again, there's another on that day. We, we said chapters 12 through 14. This is a theme that's repeated throughout these, these chapters. And the, the, the theme of it is saying on that day, meaning the day of the Lord. So on that day, we notice that there is going to be a fountain that is opened. Now, maybe we don't fully understand the significance of this. A good analogy of this would be Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well, where he invites her to come and to find living water. In her mind, this means there's a spring I, I don't know. I want the spring. I don't want to keep fetching water. Give me this living water, this spring. And Christ goes on to say that when you drink from this water, you will never thirst. In other words, the implication of this, this is not water of this world. This is the water of life that only God can, can provide and give. 
So when we have this, this day where there's this fountain that's opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, it's telling us that this is a spirit that's poured out in such a way that now there is life. We think of the vision of Ezekiel 47 of the new temple with the river of life flowing out of it. We think of Revelation, the river of life that flows forth and how the nations come and drink and eat to the tree of life. That's what's going on here. And so this becomes rather profound. The people who have pierced Christ, stabbed him in the back recognize who Christ is, bow the knee before him, truly turn uh, themselves toward him, desire to take the yoke of Christ upon them. Why? Because it's the spirit of power that has been poured forth. And notice what this spirit of life does. That the spirit of life is poured out on them in such a way that it cleanses them from sin and uncleanness. Now, these, these terms, obviously, we know what sin is. This is doing something contrary to uh, God's will, whether in our thoughts, our actions, uh, our desires. Uh, it's sin. That's contrary to God's will. But uncleanness is something that's a, a consequence of the fallen world. We think of something like leprosy. Uh, we think of something like some open wounds when you read Leviticus. And so those things... The people were not always, sometimes, uh, we can find examples where they were stricken with this as a consequence of a sin, but not always. Sometimes it's just a consequence of being human in a fallen world. And as they're a human in a fallen world, they can't come into the assembly of God's people until the Lord grants them healing. So this declaration here is saying that it's going to take away, first, a fundamental problem we have with our relationship with God, our sin, uh, the, the desires to live contrary to Him, it's going to remove that. I mean, what a wonderful promise. And it's going to remove any human limitation and consequence of living under the sun. That's what the Lord is promising to do. The ultimate glorification, the ultimate entrance into the Lord's presence. We have then... This vision of the city, and we don't have time to go into all the ins and outs of this, but, but simply stated, you have basically verses 2 and 3, uh, a declaration of where you have the false prophets in the land, where they're uh, engaging in false prophecy. It's something that's, that's good for them. You have then uh, the same piercing that's going on, uh, where you have the, the parent actually piercing uh, the individual that's going on in verse uh, uh, 13, verse 3, uh, where you have that piercing uh, that is going to be cut off. This is appealing to the Old Testament case law that a false prophet is executed. A prophet who is not prophesying the order of Moses, Deuteronomy 18, is going to be executed. Deuteronomy 13 as well, uh, the declaration there that one is going to be executed if they're a false prophet. And so the, the way this works is that even in terms of the community, we have there in verses 3 uh, that promise, that this in, or verses 2 and 3, that promise that even the parents are going to execute this perfectly. Going on then, verse 4 now, when, when you read, on that day every prophet will be ashamed. Now this every prophet we find 
qualifying verses 2 and 3, and you also have in verse 5 that this prophet is not just a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah. The intention here is that these are false prophets. Uh, This most likely is a reference like what Peter cites from Joel, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. In other words, they will know truth by the Spirit, so we're not going to need uh, these prophets. So these prophets who would rise up and uh, spread false prophecy and take the role of a prophet and look like a prophet are those who are no longer going to be present uh, because of the transforming work of God. And as this takes place, you have then the question that's asked. You have in verse 6, what are these wounds on your back? Now you may wonder, well, what does that have to do with prophecy? Well, you think about the story uh, with Elijah in the battle of gods and uh, 2 Kings 18, where you have there the prophets of Baal, the prophet or Elijah, and you have the prophets of Baal cutting themselves uh, to try and get the attention of Baal. Elijah is making fun of them for doing that. That that seems to be the case here. That these prophets would have evidence of scarring uh, because they were false prophets, prophets of Baal. And so when, when these individuals say, oh no, I'm not a prophet, I'm a worker of the land, I'm, I'm a farmer, that's what I do. And then you say, well, why, why do you have those cuts? Like a prophet of Baal wouldn't have those cuts. And you have that, these individuals so ashamed of what they have done that, that they don't want that previous life is the implication of this. And so they, they deny the reality of this false god for fear of the true god. In other words, Zechariah is saying that these false prophets will be silenced. Uh, they're not going to be able to speak. They're not going to be able to have any credibility. That's where this individual uh, shepherd is going to accomplish this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We'll see to it that it's going to take place that there is no longer any deception that's going to to happen in this most holy place of heaven itself. So Zechariah 12, verse 10 uh, through 13, verse 6, is laying out for us, on the one hand, that Pentecost event, a manifestation of the day of the Lord, people cut to the heart, outpouring of the Spirit, life, uh, true life, and, and the promises of God being fulfilled and confirmed, going to then ultimately what that will lead to, the next manifestation of the day of the Lord, of entering into the holy city of Jerusalem in its full perfection. So then how do we get here and how do we uh, make this, this conclusion? Well, as I mentioned, Peter applies the Pentecost event as the day of the Lord on that day. And as he sees that as a manifestation of on that day and the day of the Lord, this is where we say, yes, we enter into the kingdom. We're, we're realizing the, the blessings of the kingdom, or as we say, the already. We possess it. It's ours. The spirit of life has been poured out. Uh, the water of life is given to us. That's the beauty of Christ sharing this with, with, with the woman of the well. The water of life is present. The true life, the tasting of the river of life is yours. You possess this. It cleanses you. It brings about redemption, applying the blessings of Christ, taking an unworthy people and making them worthy to dwell in the presence of God. But it also guarantees and presents for us what what the Lord's ultimately going to do. 
that he's going to put down the battle of Armageddon, as I mentioned in Zechariah 12, 1 through 9, nations riding out, trying to usurp God's purpose. That as the Lord brings us about, there will no longer need to be any prophets in heaven. There will no longer need to be any ministers in heaven because we will be in the presence of God. And we will be dwelling with him in his holy mountain, the true mountain of God, the true place of rest, where we move beyond mourning, we move beyond sorrow, we move beyond being an unclean people impacted by the common curse or the fall of man, to a people who are glorified and dwell in the presence of the Most High as his redeemed. And so as we go forward we need to understand that the Lord is not just promising to make the world better. He's not just promising to make our lives better. He's giving us the assurance that everything that uh, hampers, that is broken, that has destroyed our relationship with the Lord. And you think about what that means. The Lord knows who we are. This is something, again, when, when you read the prophets and you think of Christ entering history, I mean, think about this. Christ knows this. He is the word of God. And he knows that when he enters history, his people will stab him in the back. And yet Christ still goes to the cross. He goes to Jerusalem. And and you hear that, you can understand the brokenness. But we also have to hear the majesty and, and marvel of what God is doing as a great king. That he is the one who takes the people who have stabbed his son in the back who trampled his garden, and he works in them such a repentance that they bow their knee before him. They come to him, they turn to him, and they recognize that life is only found in him. Let us then recognize the bounds of our Lord's grace, that it can cover any sin that we have done. It can take it away, it can remove it. The Lord knows our brokenness, He knows how weak and wounded we are. And he comes to us. And we also have to believe that he has given us new life. That's what Zechariah is assuring us. Saying to Israel, your temple project stalled. There's frustration of coming out of exile. But look at where the Lord is taking you. Let us remember that. Look at where our Lord is taking us and leading us as our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.